Pod Clubhouse. Attention all passengers. The temperature outside is minus 119 degrees Celsius. We are six years, nine months, and 26 days from departure. For your personal safety, be prepared to brace. This is Paul. This is Kat. And this is Inez. And tonight we're going to finish up our coverage of the second season of TNT's Snowpiercer. These two episodes, the ninth and the 10th, are called The Show Must Go On and Into the White. Super obvious connections to what happens in each episode um, <laughs> this time. Again, they don't try to fool us with these these titles. I think the show must go on. I don't know. I'm just drawing a, a very simplistic connection to the up till now unseen carnival car and uh, the all the theatrics that went on with the dinner and uh, all that kind of stuff. These two are pretty straightforward because I think it's pretty, uh, they didn't need to be, I think, too witty in their titles because there's a lot of carnage in these. <laughs> and um, I think if they had been too dramatic, it would have made it too silly. So the fact that they kept it pretty spot on, I feel like was the way to go. I mean, I was looking for some kind of um, symbolic connection. So I'm assuming like the show must go on ties to despite like Ruth and Layton getting stuck over there as pooper scoopers um, <laughs> that right when it ends, uh, you know, that there's still something up. So, you know, that there's still something that we're going to see again, it's kind of like foreshadowing. So despite that, like besides the obvious of the carnival train, which like great use of funds and resources. Like I think Paul, you, you send us a text message, like no wonder Melanie wanted to get rid of him. <laughs> yeah. um, that was pretty fucking ridiculous. But I also was kind of adding that symbolic piece there. Andre and Ruth are not down. They're just out. It's funny when you see like how well designed the rest of the train is, the idea of the compost room requiring someone to be in there. <laughs> and, yes, and shoveling stuff into the, the I don't know what that seems like that it would have to be either maybe it's a combination of things it's like if you've seen the movie then you know that that might be a con like a, a tie-in to what that kid was doing at the end in the engine how that seemed to require a person to do that job but didn't seem to really require a person to do that job but then also the dude made a dungeon. He made a, le a legit dungeon. Like he planned ahead. He's like, no, no, don't automate that. I have, I have a special purpose in mind right. for that area. Right. So why would he not also just make like this job as a punishment thing? If he had so many other torture chamber kinds of designs all throughout the train, um, right. I, <laughs> you like know, the I was arm portholes and things the like that. arm portholes, the masks, <laughs> Um, that just force you to breathe in the ice cold air into your lungs. Like that's a God awful way to murder somebody. <laughs> right. And so like, I, I also wrote this, I was like, who the fuck was doing this job before? <laughs> and like, why, why is the train so sophisticated yet? We have pooper scoopers 
you know, that are just like treasure hunting, <laughs> you know, amongst the dung. Yeah, it was it was a little bit bizarre to me. So now that as you're talking, Paul, I think it makes sense that maybe this is one of those intentional things like just for his ego so that he can like fuck with somebody's mind. Yeah, it does seem like um, just because he um, I can't remember which episode, but where he speaks of class um, and like making sure there is a distinction based on like what ticket was bought and like what people were actually supposed to be in that this is like hey you are like scooping shit you know (laughs) like like this is your place in the world and also like with Wilford there is a lot of like motivation so I feel like this is also one of his mind games where hey if you want to get out of scooping like poop what will you do for me and then you'll get out of there and then like whoever is like um you know on a shit list literally (laughs) uh will go and scoop poop (laughs) So I feel like this is very much like his sadistic leadership thing that he he put into place, which is so methodical. Like, I don't know. It just so it just shows another layer to him of like if we have any doubt of what kind of leader he wanted to be like, he really thought this out. <laughs> Let's talk about one of the people that went through uh, the composting room and her journey through there. I mean, I'm talking about Ruth. If you think about her, her whole everything where we meet her, you know, she's in charge uh, of hospitality with Melanie. She carries out sentencing in the, in the tale with uh, Winnie's mom and has this sense of duty and service that I don't think anyone on this podcast can really um, appreciate (laughs) the level that she takes her job. But then these episodes show her like the mirror image of that, right? The the absolute lowest. I mean, if there was a spot lower on the train than the tail, it's probably the composting room. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but before we get her there, let's talk a little bit about all the stuff she goes through on The Show Must Go On. Mainly, I mean, that whole episode is rough for her because there's, you know, Kevin's intrusions into her turf and all that kind of stuff but mainly i want to talk i love that <laughs> right <laughs> I, I like the the turf wars I, I put in my in my notes ruth tells kevin to piss off <laughs> <laughs> it was really satisfying but mainly i want to talk about that moment where she finally does get the offer the one that we kind of saw coming that was maybe alluded to earlier when when he makes the offer to ruth to come across to big alice with no strings attached but now she's being offered the, 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 the plum, the title of head of hospitality, but all she has to do is basically renounce Melanie. That's a big moment that we kind of saw coming. But what did you think of, of uh, that whole moment and the drama and, and, and how Ruth performed? Oh, man. I thought that this episode and these two episodes for Ruth were amazing. She definitely was my top favorite. And I think I like her transitions between both of these episodes amongst the best. And it really got me riled up. I love how they started off this scene where, you know, very focused on her manicure nails so much so that I kept like focusing on it. And I now realize because they were prepping us for this very opposite transition, (laughs) um, you know, where she's now going to be shoveling the train shit. And um, so I thought that was fun in just kind of a storytelling kind of way. But I I thought she was going to die. 
Did you guys, what did you think was going to happen? I, I, I mean, I had no idea about this, uh, this poop room, but I really thought like, oh my God, this is the to- the moment that all of us have been fearing and talking about since we keep liking her more and more and more. Like her, her walk of shame, how that was going to wind up. You mean, uh, besides, yeah, yeah, did that feel very Game of Thronesy, by yes, the way? Yes, yes, like uh, Queen uh, Cersei, shame, <laughs> yes. <Game> dong, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think, I mean, I know we've spoken about it, but I think there's other good characters, obviously. But like, Ruth has been one of my favorites, and I think these last two really solidified that. I'm so happy she has lived through this, but um. I feel like if they if she were to die in season three, like that would be kind of earned in a way. Like I, I know that's kind of weird to say, but I, I feel like they've really um, like through season one and now season the end of season two, they've really built it up like where we love her. Like at least if you're a certain kind of viewer, I mean, I love her at this point. Like she's one of my favorites and if not my favorite. So seeing her come to the realization, especially where she started, like in, you know, when we were talking about her in episode one, like we had the loyalty meter was built because of her. Right. And that mm. was just like, if they're, if the loyalty meter, like we're judging it now, like she is like beyond that, like full <laughs> snow. Um, and then it's funny too, because at the beginning of se- like uh, season two, her dream, like if she had been offered the job of, you know, um, being with Mr. Wilford, like she would have taken that no question, but seeing it like happen in this episode, like in, in, in these last two as a viewer, it's just kind of funny to see that, like, I don't know, like the full scope of it and how like, she's like, Oh no, like, like my dreams are not what I actually wanted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Reality, you know, like that reality is not the same as what you thought it would be. And that's like, um, something I think we can all relate to sometimes. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that, you know, she was telling, I think it was Till where she was coaching her, like be something he needs, and in the end, Ruth couldn't do that. Um, so that was um, also kind of one of those cool little details of, of character journey uh, and, and character arc. But I also really love that this sets her up with, um, you know, Andre's kind of had been a fish out of water trying to manage things at the Ruth's kind of domain. And now we get to see Ruth kind of in the closest conditions of what Andre has been through for the last seven years as a tailie. Um, so he's kind of like almost unfazed because he's just planning and strategizing in his head. And now Ruth gets to experience this side like of Andre. So it's kind of cool seeing the transition of power and reliance, but also I fucking give props to both of them for turning out to be one of the baddest ass teams that I've ever seen on screen as they make their escape and their movement and uh, and whatnot. And it's like, okay, Andre, like, this is what we wanted you to be doing. You know, like, this is how you should have been inspiring and using your resources also. But I totally love how Ruth was down to like, yeah, I'll fucking kill some people. And it felt right. She had gone through this journey, this whole season of realizing Mr. Wilford wasn't who she thought he was, of realizing that Melanie wasn't who she thought she was, and appreciating Melanie's position and and learning why she did all the stuff that she did. And, and finally, all that coming to roost at this moment at the dinner and making her stand um, and winding up at, at this very low position and then rolling with it and being that partner on the same level that Andre rejected her earlier now 
now that they are both in the shit room together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's one of those things that I, again, I feel it's very relatable where it's like you have your ideals, right? But when you actually have to live them and then you kind of put yourself in the person's shoes that you were judging in a way and you're like, oh, now I understand like what you, where you were coming from. And while, you know, I still believe this or that, I'm like, I can understand why you would do this. And I feel like that's what, like Ruth is like the everyday, um, you know, person is like, you know, she had her morals, she had her thing, but when she actually had to live it and realize like, oh, Wilford was my hero and now he's not because he's actually a really shitty person, literally, <laughs> and put me <laughs> in the shitter. And then like Melanie, I thought she was X word or whatever is, and she realizes like, oh, I understand now why you had to do what you did. Like, I think we've all been there where you just... You, you kind of prejudge or you kind of think like, you know, I, I love this person, but then when you meet them, it's like, oh no, you're not actually not that person that I thought you were. And then I keep coming back to the word relatable because I feel like even though this is like a post-apocalyptic world, like I could see myself in her in, in these two episodes where you, she's coming to those realizations. And unfortunately it's like really in, 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 in circumstances that are very hard, <laughs> like where she has to get like put in her place, you know, or like, um, sent off because she realized that she was wrong in her judgment, you know, but she earns it back. I mean, she earns back her, her position. And I think, I think now Andre will treat her exactly as, as an equal, um, you know, when they are going to charge the jackboots in, in big Alice and he says, go on three and she runs out on two, <laughs> you know, her conversion to badass is complete. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It was amazing it. to see her just like, like strike down the, <laughs> those people. Man. Well, that was a terrific scene and very, but still true Gina, to her character. She sees the bath and she's like, um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they both looks great. Right. They both take advantage of that. Yeah, we have we have some time to spare for that. Right. The plan has uh, half an hour wiggle room in it, right? <laughs> <laughs> but overall, I can't wait to see what comes of Ruth in times to come because she's had all this now. I know I predicted that she might be on the chopping block, but I think this resets her character in a way that she can grow again because now you know she had inherited a leader's type position at the beginning of this season just by virtue of having been on the train in hospitality and melanie's successor etc but now she's literally gone from the bottom of the train back up to the top so whatever happens from now on she's earning it in a, in a brand new way that I'm excited to see where it goes. I mean, she, I think she still may be at stake, but now I think our hearts are going to break a lot more <laughs> yes, so. if anything does happen to her. Yeah, I'm kind of worried for, for Ruth, though. She didn't get to make it on to the front part of Snowpiercer with the rest of the posse because she really needed that that teal jacket and i was glad that she was able to kick kevin's ass a little bit and throw him around like to get this jacket but now i'm just wondering like does uh wilford and his crew know that she's been left behind and she is there or do you think that we'll start season three with them thinking that she also escaped with the rest of them i mean if i'm wilford 
I think I'm smart enough. <laughs> I think I'm smart enough to not make any assumptions and then to try to make sure that everybody on the train that I have left is still on my team. But you don't know. She she might she's I bet she's gotten a lot wiser over the past couple of days and in terms of uh needing to look out for herself and and, and that kind of stuff. Hmm. But still, she's she's not accustomed to it, so she might get caught right away. I think that's where I'm leaning. Yeah. But she also did like murder a bunch of people. So that's really good motivation to stay in the shadows. That's true. That's true. Kat? It's so funny because I remember at the end of season one, I couldn't imagine what we would be, you know, what season two was holding. I, I, I only thought like what I hoped for. And it's honestly been better than I thought. And like the train's splitting in half right now. And like the people that are left in, in you know, in both trains, like... What a great season three. Like, I just, I just hope there's a lot of people watching this because like, it's really great TV right now. <laughs> so, um, I, I'm just really excited to see like whoever's left because essentially like these two trains, they still need each other. Right. So mm-hmm. I don't know how they're going to do it, but they need to get back together. And Wilford's been willing to risk the train before, you know, just like Layden said. So, uh, you know, with like the engine room fiasco of how he took leadership. So like, it's going to make for an interesting season three, I think is what I'm saying <laughs> of like the dynamics, because yeah. like on one hand, like if it was just like a normal kind of show, if it wasn't set in the up apocalyptic like train setting, I'd be like, you know, it could predict one way. But since it is very much dependent, like they need each other, like you can't just go and kill everyone, you know? So I feel like Ruth will be safe to a certain point, but I don't know when she's expendable, she will be expendable, you know? I really love that you had me reflect back on the Ruth that we knew at the start of the season and even the Ruth from season one, because that is totally a completely (laughs) different direction than we thought. So thank you, Kat. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take a look at her partner in the composting room adventure, Andre Layton. The all season, we had been disappointed, I guess, with his performance as leader of the train. And it's not really a failing on his part. It's just that he's probably just not suited toward large scale executive leadership like that, you know, uh, and not everybody is. It's It doesn't make him a bad guy. But by the end of this, we are back into his area of expertise, which is starting revolutions, sneaking around and taking advantage of, you know, lapses in security and things like that. But did anything stick out to you? Because he didn't he wasn't really in so much of the ninth episode, just shoveling shit all all the live long day. Did you guys have any closing thoughts on Andre or, or moving forward with him? Um, I think it was just something that Alex said in the 10th episode. I know I've kind of dogged on him a little bit of like, you know, he hasn't been the best leader for Snowpiercer in a way where, I mean, Wilford is in a sense, a good leader because he's kind of ruthless for this post-apocalyptic world, you know, and, and I think Layden is approaching it very differently, but Alex kind of reminded me in her voiceover um, in the finale where she says, I saw Layden and the way he was leading was listening to people. 
I was like, oh yeah, that's right. You know, I, I know we've kind of talked about it. Like we were kind of judging him in a way of like, he's not leading correctly. Cause he's like, these people are going to turn on him, but he was trying to do the best he could and like try to be different than, you know, what was previously in place. And so I think for me, that was kind of like the lasting thing. And I think now that he has Ruth like hundred percent on board, they're on the same page and like he will show people with what he's done. Maybe they will come around and he can kind of emerge as a, a new leader than he couldn't before and they didn't see. So um, that's kind mm. of like my last, uh, yeah. like my thoughts leading into season three is like, although he did like take the train, but like, I, I feel like some people didn't see that, you know? Because as we've learned, there's a thousand and one, a thousand and thirty four cars. So like, who knows what's seen what? Like, where is the information getting dispersed? You know that sort of thing. But now that they're like physically split, I feel like, I don't know. I think that would be more of a distinction for people. Yeah, if I look back on Andre, I feel like Andre does have people. So I'll agree, Cat. Like he does have the people in mind, but I didn't feel like he was listening to people that were you know, his advisors. And, <laughs> and so he, you know, the people that we, we, we witnessed this season was him going opposite of what his advisor said. Right. And then listening to like Zara's single advice. So I, I feel like I don't have enough evidence to, to truly believe that he was listening to people, but I do believe his heart and intentions absolutely are connected with the well-being of the, of the whole, but he really hasn't learned how to do that yet. And I think that taking on this new train going into, or I guess the front part of the train and with his smaller micro crew, that maybe some of the lessons that he's learned from the first time around, uh, you know, maybe he's got a good set of people around him to help him make better choices in season three. So in that way, I do kind of hope but I feel like he earned us dogging on him this season. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny because he actually just reminded me of um, like when he's in the, <laughs> I'm just going to call it the shit room. Um, when he's in the <laughs> shitter room, um, he tells uh, Ruth, you know, when they're planning that escape, like, okay, like, you know, we got to resort to blah, blah, blah. And I was like, where, where, where was that like drive when you were like a leader? But I think he, you know, like uh, sort of like, oh, I've seen what uh, Wilford can do, you know, and now like basically he was insinuating like we got to be just as ruthless you know and um but he wasn't willing to go there and i think that that also just like shows what kind of leader he wants to be he doesn't want to resort to violence necessarily but like he realizes i think when he ended up in the shit room like oh sometimes you gotta do that you know <laughs> like to the to, to the people that deserve it i guess but again like who deserves it and i guess that's like his thing is like he didn't want to pass that judgment because the tailies were the ones that got that judgment just because they didn't have a ticket so like i think he has been hesitant to do that but i think everything that he's gone through um up to this point is like maybe changing his mind in a way like we, you do have to pass that judgment if you're a leader at some point. On that note, there is that moment when he's not sure if the train is going to split in half or not. And he's got Audrey hostage and he's threatening her life. I thought give him five more seconds and he cuts her throat. What do you guys think? I thought he was going to cut her throat open. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, oh what a turning point that would have been, right? Like, I think that would have been the ultimate thing of what I'm talking about is like, he realizes like, you have to be ruthless <laughs> too to get, you know, to save the whole train. It's like that thing. Like, unfortunately, sometimes you have to sacrifice like one to save the hundred or whatever it is. 
it surprised me from episode nine through episode 10. Episode nine, I had made a note, you know, when Andre was talking to Ruth in the in the poop room and saying, we have friends who've got our back. And then the camera panned to Audrey. And I thought, oh, is there like some kind of symbolism here? Like some kind of foreshadowing connection? So I was like super like, oh, fuck, maybe not when I saw him. <laughs> and, like, I really, truly, on, I mean, they were already on a fucking carnage um, trail. So I was like, well, I guess it's another one. And, and I am actually glad that he did not do that to Audrey, just because I still don't know fully her story. And also, I think that that Audrey's story is kind of a parallel like message to people about like victims of continuous domestic violence. And so uh, and kind of like how they had that repetitive behavior going back to their abusers and things like that. And so I'm going to choose to accept that this is part of Audrey's like, you know, unfortunate uh, trauma response. So I was very happy to see that Leighton did not end up killing her. But for that moment, Paul, absolutely. I thought it was done. I thought it was over. Audrey doesn't really factor into these last couple, except as like kind of snark. She seems to be uh, very heavily self-medicating, at least with alcohol, if not opiates or, or something else to kind of make a real, real easy going. But yeah, I thought he had a look in his eye that convinced me that it was over for her <laughs> if, if something didn't intervene. Speaking of that intervention, though, unless you guys want to have have more to say on Andre, I mean, he 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 had stuff to do these episodes, but nothing earth shattering per se, except for that moment we just discussed. And that may be a pivotal moment for him where he realizes the length that he will go to now to take care of what he considers his people. That would have been a big deal. That would have been basically murder. She can't defend herself at all. You know, mm-hmm. right. It, it changes maybe just like what season three will be and like what he like, like what you just said. I think he's going to realize like what he's capable of. And luckily he didn't cross that line, but like he was possibly willing to, you know, and maybe he is going to kind of take that into consideration. <laughs> I don't know, like reassess or or do what he needs to do in this new separate trains, you know? Yeah. 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 I do have a question, actually, about like the poop sifting. An area I I know a lot about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's just because like, like, I'm just thinking like, what what was like the real big purpose? Because like, we're talking about this being a very advanced technical train. Is that an intentional like part of the service that you have to sift through the poop? Or is that just something he started doing out of being bored? And then like, it ended up paying off. Maybe it was just anything that seemed useful without knowing exactly how it would be useful, whether it was shiny or whatever it caught his attention, he would grab out. The the idea that Ruth would recognize a lipstick and pull it out is probably a little bit further of a leap. Because, you know, it was basically like her first day. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really funny, um, a funny detail. I know it might be not super realistic, but I did think it was really funny that Leighton's been doing all of this, like, backbreaking work in an episode. And at that point, like, she was, like, not doing anything. She was just kind of, like, venting at him while he's doing all of the work. And then she's the one who finds it <laughs> and saves the moment. That is funny. But yeah, I guess with the lipstick, though, he might not have uh, cared or noticed um, because he was pulling out. It looked like things that could be made into sharp things and other, 
I don't know, things like that. So it does make, I guess now that I'm thinking about it, it does make some sense that she would find it, but you're right. It, she was pretty new on the scene <laughs> to, to, to be uh, adapting that quickly, but there she is. Yeah. Like what was the course on that? Right. Like you got <laughs> to sift um, and then take out the objects. Like maybe I'm guessing like they're very resourceful. So like maybe all the metal objects like will probably maybe they'll be melted down or something and like and and, and repurposed. But um, it, it just seems weird. That, like, like I don't I don't I wonder what the PowerPoint was on that. <laughs> <laughs> And like, also, do you think there was that sort of thing on Snowpiercer? It's a good question. He, I mean, he designed both trains. Maybe just like they knew to keep the aquarium closed and the carnival closed. Like, maybe Melanie's like, we don't, we don't need to do this. <laughs> maybe she kept their poop, Snowpiercer's poop um, torture room closed. <laughs> She's been filling up with poop this whole time. Yeah, it's like automated. Because I feel like there's like automated sifters, right? Like, like oh yeah. I mean, I watch um, I watch a lot of like NASA stuff, and so I remember part of one of the documentaries was the the astronauts talking us through like how every single thing gets recycled um, through it. Like their urine ends up being processed in a way that gets re-released into the air as part of their oxygen, you know? So I imagine that same kind of complexity probably exists in the train, which is why a poop room wasn't a realistic thing for me other than maybe for like torture. Yeah. Let's uh, talk about their savior, Josie, real quick. She does kind of what we thought she might which is make good um i never i never thought that she would do what he was asking her to do was there any moment when the sabotage idea for icy josie took root with either of you guys like oh no she's gonna do it oh my god never never we have had unwavering loyalty and and confidence in <laughs> our Josie and a few times we mentioned predicting that she would be like their first superhero so I was really excited to see that she comes and saves the day yeah I think this was like a real weak part on Wilford thinking that um he's like the ultimate like he breaks people and I thought I think that he thought that he could break Josie because he saved her and you know, he introduced her to like breaking her phantom pain of her hand and like all this sort of thing. And I think he thought like since it worked on other people that it would work on her because like of her condition of how she came in and how like she had to like be, you know, kind of restored or whatever. And I, I feel like she just he really underestimated Josie. <laughs> in, in this sense. And, and so I feel like if there's like any weak point in Wilford's plan, it was Josie. Like I, I think he didn't really fully understand like how loyal she is is to Snowpiercer and her people. <laughs> yeah, he, they ended up making their own worst enemy. You know, I, I kept thinking every time that there was some kind of suggestions and conversations like, oh, you better listen or else like something bad will happen or whatever. I kept thinking like, what, they would try to kill her after like spending so many like super valuable resources on her? No way. Like she can do whatever the fuck she wants to do. And I love that she took advantage of being able to walk around the train and be an asset and just kind of do her own thing. And because she's a tailie and there's no records on her, I think the whole idea that she is truly a stranger they don't know anything about her loyalty 
Um, well, Wilford doesn't know anything about her loyalty. Ben did and capitalized on that, uh, which was awesome. So, you know, thank you, Ben. I don't know. I just, I never for a second ever thought that they would break her. No, no way. I didn't make a note of what side of the train she landed on after the train broke in half. Did she wind up on the pirate train or the other train? She was on the pirate train. Um, they in the end of of episode ten, I believe they show her in that train when they uh, go check out like Melanie's spot. Okay, the idea of going down and and chasing down the other train and all that stuff. Plot wise, I was wondering, did they just run? Was there like some piece of track where they could go back? Because the spot where they needed to pick up Melanie was actually behind them, not in front of them. So I was wondering how they like got back to where they needed to go in such a way that they could stop and go and pick her up. I, I know that they can mm-hmm. stop because they don't have much train to work with. So they can, they can stop and go as they want now without it being a big deal. It's just like, how'd they get back there? But then the idea of linking up with the rest of the train is going to be a lot of trouble because both trains now have debris where there, where there should be connection parts. You know, maybe that'll be the opportunity for us to see more of, of, of Boki's strengths. Uh, I'm imagine that they'll have to do something like that uh, on the outside. Like well, that poor guy. Thing. I mean, he's he's <laughs> he's stuck on the bad train where they don't care about Breachman. Apparently, <laughs> if they're willing to kill all of them. Um, that's not a safe place for him to be, especially since he was siding with the the pirates. Oh, I guess I didn't realize that he got that he did get left behind. I'm pretty sure he did, because uh, he was trying to pull. He was trying to do some sort of releases in the subtrain area, and I think that's where he wound up, because he was overwhelmed by jackboots. Yeah, I think you're right, Paul. Um, unless I'm misremembering, but yeah, I feel like that would also be just like a good TV device. You know, like we got to have some conflict on those on these trains <laughs> for season three. So yeah, I wonder how that's going to play out. But like, he's such a big dude, like, and they don't have an icy Bob anymore I- anymore, right? Like we're assuming. So, um, well, did he die or he didn't die? But I feel like he's like on his way out. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I saw people on the on the board assuming that he was dead i just thought he was in really bad shape me too yeah i feel like it's like the recovery time is probably like every time he goes out is probably just like super long you know because he was like the original and i feel like josie's recovery time is like less you know or if we're assuming that they've like really perfected the ice i don't know what are we calling the equation or whatever um is just um better so like maybe she doesn't need as much help as like icy bob did you know Mm-hmm. But she also had like a full suit, and I feel like Icy Bob had no suit. Am I remembering yeah. that incorrectly? No, he had a suit. It was it was just sort of more primitive. I guess the technology for his grafting and whatever resistance is more primitive than hers. Hers looks like basically just like a nice wetsuit, you know, uh, with a cool helmet. But his was his looked more like an old fashioned like like navy diver suit almost, you know. Mm. Or like a Russian cosmonaut. So just something that just didn't look quite, you know, as modern as hers. I think that's like, I know we had talked about it before and speculated, like, I I think that's how Wilford would get him to do those things is like, well, first off, there wasn't Snowpiercer to begin with. So like the things he was doing, I guess he had to like kind of do it because they saved him 
obviously if he, and who knows if like he was one of the victims of Wilford where like he did that on purpose, you know, like with all his contraptions that he had, like the ice thing and, and those, um, like what the doctors had in, in, in Alice. So, um, I wonder if he just had to do it out of necessity because then he needed to get like revived. But I don't know if we had like speculated like what it was that they would like get him to do that. But I just feel like he just had no choice. Like there was no other purpose for him. I agree with that. He did seem like he had tied in his own identity to whatever this purpose was. And we now know that was just as a throwaway saboteur, um, one time use only <laughs> for, for Mr. Wilford. But that he that's all he counted himself as. Uh, we may never get an explanation of how that worked exactly, because if that same mojo was being applied to Josie, it sure didn't take. While we're talking about Mr. Wilford, let's go ahead and talk about him over these two episodes, because that guy was one active monkey over these these couple of episodes. <laughs> what with his like uh, greatest showman bit in uh, The Show Must Go On, mind games that he played over the dinner... And then all the shenanigans trying to get his trains back in in the last episode. I, I guess I just don't have a, a single comment about it other, other than it was just a joy to watch Sean Bean and the character go through all this stuff and still kind of maintain his snarky cool through a lot of it. But then show us, like particularly with Javi, what we already kind of knew about him. Did you guys hold out hope that he'd show Javi some mercy or was it just like a foregone kind of Joffrey-esque moment in, in your mind? I feel like Wilford could be totally sloppy like that of like, it didn't even matter if, if Javi is the last engineer like Javi was telling him, you can't kill me because you need the engineers. And I totally could see Wilford being so impulsively uncontrollable of making, you know, of making rational decisions when that kind of challenge is presented to him. So it's quite possible in my mind that Javi is actually dead, even though I also don't count him out completely. And, you know, maybe it could be one of those things where he beat him or, you know, hurt him enough that he is barely alive and he felt a lot of that pain. Oh man, I really hope so, especially because now it was just Wilford as the engineer of Big Alice, right? <laughs> right, right. That's a good yeah. point. So I have a, a, like a few perspectives, just like from like a fan perspective, I'm like, okay, yes, I want Hoppy to live. I liked him. And like, it was, I don't know if this is true, but like in the last two episodes, it seemed like he, this is when he only spoke Spanish. Like he brought it out and I was just <laughs> like, okay, cool. And I feel like, you know, I, I know you mentioned Paul earlier, like how when you have a little bit more of a personality, if you're more of a side character, like if you have more of an arc, like that's when you're going to go out. It's a bad sign, right? <laughs> yes. yes. And I feel like, okay, Javi, you're doing your Colombian and like you are, yes, you're on your way out. So I feel like that was maybe a telltale sign of like, we're seeing a little bit more of you, your personality, and like, this is your end. Um, I hope not too. like, I'm with Inez where I'm, I don't want this to be the end of Javi because he is an engineer and like, they are scarce. So like, it would show Wilford's kind of impulse of like, just wanting to have that leadership role where it is very different from Layden where Layden let Wilford do his thing because he knew he couldn't have that intellect, like in the last episode to save the train. But if 
Wilfred really did kill Javi, like that just shows that he values himself more than the train, <laughs> which I think we at this point is pretty much like cemented. Which is what Melanie yeah. like said from the beginning when she when it was all about when it was all revealed that he was that Wilfred was not even on the train. Like she said, it's basically that because he cares about himself more than like the whole. Javi's sort of like a like a stand-in for a lot of people, I think, in terms, you know, like when when viewers engage with a story, sometimes they find a person that they that they like and because they identify with that person, they think, well, this is the person that's most like me. Like, for instance, with Game of Thrones, I always identified mostly with Sir Davos, the Onion Knight, you know, the guy with. Uh, Aww, I totally see that, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I'm glad he made it. <laughs> but in this story, I, I identify a lot with Javi. You know, he's a he's a smart guy, useful guy. He's got a conscience, but he does his job. And and but when it comes down to it, he does a couple of brave things, even though it scares the ever loving shit out of him to do it. And I can totally identify with that kind of kind of way of being. You know, um, last season he saves Melanie, even though uh, it scares the hell out of him to do it. And this epi- this season, same thing he's he's needing to man his post even though the uh, enemies are at the gate and pounding on his door <laughs> that was funny seeing the jackboots trying to take down the door with like a like a like a SWAT team pounder like that uh, <laughs> yeah yeah oh <laughs> totally the wrong tool for that but just keep doing that um but yeah. anyway yeah, I don't know. I feel like I hope I hope Inez like I hadn't even thought about that because like to me, Javi is dead um, in my mind. He, he quit screaming <laughs> at a certain yeah. point. I think he quit screaming when the dog was still chewing in viewers terms. Like if he is dead, like that makes it more impactful in a way like like just like Game of Thrones, like they were willing to kill people and it made it like, oh, shit, there is actually stakes involved, you know, so like in one sense, I'm like. I hope Javi is dead, but in the other sense, I'm like, I hope Javi's not dead. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, this, the, you know, high stakes are what make these shows as watchable for a, a long period of time as they can be. When you start to get that sense of like, oh, well, these are the untouchables, then it starts to feel like the same plot, just kind of with a little bit of set dressing that's different, but otherwise its entertainment value falls off. I really appreciate the actor who plays Javi, like how he did the scene. I was so stressed out. I thought that his portrayal of that panic felt so genuine. I know, and man. it felt like it better reflected like what I would be feeling internally than what I normally see on TV, like kind of like sci-fi-ish. They kind of like, usually sci-fi is I connect with like almost like comedy, like unintentional comedy. But this one, I feel like there's so many more raw emotional opportunities for me that I really appreciate. And I, oh my God, like I was teary on the scene with Avi. I was so sad. But when he was panicking, stressing, like I suffer anxiety and I felt like I was reliving like one of my worst anxiety attacks, like watching him. And I felt, I felt so horrible for him. And I was so proud of him for being so brave, even though he was like suffering horribly in those, in those last moments. Yeah, that, that was tough to watch. But Mr. Wilford, is he turned out to be the guy we always thought, you know. <laughs> they definitely yeah. showed us. They definitely showed us why. Paul, do you think we can like like rewind a little bit and go to like episode nine and talk about this like circus carnival scene? Yeah, absolutely. What what did you have in mind? 
well, you know, like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that? that the biggest WTF stuff for me in terms of the carnival wasn't necessarily the carnival car's existence, but the fact that he had written this play for the puppets and had people make puppets and this whole puppet thing that was pretty much only aimed at breaking Alex's heart. That was the biggest WTF oh for me. What about what, what what stood out to you? Oh my fucking god, it was horrible. It was horrible. I'm a mom to a daughter and, you know, I, oh my god, she was 10. We, you know, we learned later that she was 10 when um when all this happened and I'm just thinking like she's had to deal with Wilford's abuse like this for the last like seven to eight years now and like how horrible of an existence but like you have no choice but to have an engagement with him with somebody so horrible and gosh you know I still see people theorize on the Facebook groups about Wilford potentially being her father and I'm like I just feel like Everything in these last two episodes should scream to us that this is absolutely not the case. He's just a really cruel man who leveraged her to get what he wanted, which he did. And man, it was so fucking fucked up uh, (laughs) that uh, it was so messed up. Like, oh, my God, I was I was hurting for Alex so badly of how he was just throwing these really horrible lines um, from his play like. And, it was disg- and then there's children watching. Right. He, the special invitees uh, <laughs> just to see it. That's another uh, Game of Thrones parallel, right? With the puppet shows that would portray <laughs> the the uh, King's Landing, uh, what do they call them? The small folk uh, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> with their opinion of the royalty. Oh, man. I, I mean, I've been one of those people that have speculated that Wilford is um, Alex's dad. But when she's the the narrator in in the finale, um, and she's like, "Oh, he told me to call it call." I don't know if she, if he's the one that like specifically said like, "Call me um, like, what is it, Dad uh, Dubs or something or Papa?" Yeah, Dad. Daddy Dubs, I think. Daddy Dubs, yeah, and like I don't know, like it's always seemed with Alex that she's kind of like uh, an arm's length away from him. Like if he had taken her under his wing and like really nurtured her, she would have been more loyal to him and not like gone to Melanie right away. Like how she does in, in the season. Right. So like, it feels like he did not treat her like that is his own like spawn kind of thing. So like, I feel like, um, this, like the finale kind of taught me like, maybe it isn't like his daughter because like that seems very weird unless he's just not able to kind of really show that love to someone if it is his daughter yeah i don't know it was very sad in that sense of like the carnival scene where it was just like i don't know but also haven't you heard that like the thing of you know like if you want to hurt somebody that means you do care for them in a way like even though it's kind of very like malicious kind of like the if you don't care for someone you're just very indifferent you don't even like care to do this whole theatrics and stuff so I feel like in some maybe sadistic way, Wilford does care for Alex because, I mean, obviously it's been seven years of him caring for her, whether he did it for a purpose and whether like he thought like, oh, I'll catch up to Melanie one day and I'll show her, you know, like and I'll have Alex to kind of take on. Like, 
I don't know. I think maybe it's just because like I have a puppy and like the care that it's been taking to like take care of him every single day. Like it's an effort, you know, and like for him to take on a 10 year old girl, you know, like, yes, maybe he did it for a purpose. Maybe he had his people on Big Alice take care of her for some of that time. It still was an investment of his time that he did not have to do. Right. Like he could have hurt Melanie if he eventually caught up to her regardless. But like the fact that he did invest that time to train her as an engineer. Like, I think he does care for her in some way. So maybe that was him lashing out with the puppet show of saying, like trying to show her, like, I care about you and I can't believe that you chose Melanie over me. Like kind of a kid tantrum, you know? (laughs) You know, that is just wild enough to make sense. I didn't look at it that (laughs) way, but you know, that tracks. What do you think, Inez? I think that's a super interesting perspective. And I also agree that uh, I wouldn't put it past him. But I I honestly feel like the time and investment that he did with Alex was purely for his own needs because she he was the only engineer in Big Alice. So he needed somebody who would mold and do exactly what it is that he needed from an engineering perspective. And he knew the brilliance that is Melanie and uh, and figured like he can integrate some of that. But he had to break her enough to ensure that he gets his like keeps his ego and tries to control her in that way not that you were incorrect cat when you said earlier that wilford is a good leader i think that wilford is really good at motivating people through fear but i definitely don't would not say that that is a character of a good leader yeah, um <laughs> definitely not <laughs> and, and he, alex doesn't subscribe to that so i feel like he treated her differently without even knowing it don't you think yeah for sure i mean she's the only one that can get away with being like super cash with him besides audrey you know she still kind of has that sassy teenager part and he just kind of gives stink face about it and really hasn't punished her a whole lot i mean his punishment in episode nine was putting her in like in a cage which i feel like is like really mild in comparison to what he does with like everybody else so maybe there's some value in what you're apps what you're saying cat like there's a subconscious level he does care about her because right like yeah. I, everybody anybody else can fucking like kill him um bath, bath time, arm through, right, right? Yeah. bath time oh my god Ugh. so yeah. um but yeah and then like i love how easy it was for her to get out of it she's like look i can get it out of here super easily you know when she comes when she gets her buddies to come by and she helps them out and uh, she's like nah you can leave me here i already know how to get out because Wilfred does have that kind of like hope of continuing to groom her on his side because he does need her at the end of the day. He just killed another engineer. I know at that point he hadn't yet, but I feel like he keeps her close because she's perfectly molded as an engineer to like his liking. And she's has that touch, that superiority in skill that Ben and Javi might have. Yeah, I guess like like he has she has exactly what Melanie had. Right. Basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the the leadership aspect of of Mr. Wilford and and the opening of uh, 209, The Show Must Go On, where Ruth is narrating and we're getting kind of that, you know, how every show opens with kind of a montage of what the person is narrating to kind of illustrate what they're saying. The idea that Mr. Wilford had restored order, that the train was quiet again and, and things were running smoothly, but then they show like Jack Boots had also returned to the to the scene. It reminded me of how Germans describe Hitler in the late 30s before things 
got kicked into high gear with World War II. And the statement, it, it, it's funny that it would apply here, but they, they say that he made the trains run on time, which was something that I guess, you know, people take for granted. But if your country's running like shit, I guess it doesn't happen like that. When he comes to power, things kind of even out. And, and Mr. Wilford had that same sort of thing, but they were already on a train. So it wasn't, you know, a matter of yeah. <laughs> running on time. But I think that's a cool connection. I think that you're onto something uh, with that. I did feel like it was intentional to make it feel like that. Did you also notice, though, that uh, even though they were in first class for several scenes, you know, after Ruth makes this, you know, the the, the train is running uh, according to this new order, that the lights were flickering a lot. Just in the background, just every so often, just, you know, the lights would just flicker. And it just made me think uh, it was just like a very subtle, like everything's not quite as cracked up as it's as it's uh supposed to be it's it's like a chink in the armor basically like it's he's presenting well but the lights aren't actually running like they're supposed to just little things like that i didn't uh those are the kinds of details i think to show that irony that that piece of irony so i think i'm gonna go back and kind of rewatch it with that lens <laughs> well, the thing that stopped me was um, the LJ moment where. Um, Are you still cutting off penises? Or? <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, it, it, was, it was like, like I think LJ thought like, oh well, everyone's sadistic like I am. Wilford's like me, you know. And then it was like, no, there is a distinction, you know. Like he, <laughs> like he, like you're. St- I, I don't know if it was like a gender thing because you know I don't, I'm not very. I'm I'm not like on that page of like always like dictating it because of that but like it was more where i noticed like his order you know i feel like i don't know if he's like ocd about it but he was just like hey like you know when she was telling her story and she was basically saying like i got away with murder and then she was like he was like wait what like so you got away with murder you know like and and he like if if wilford is is anything like you have to give it to him like he i guess is kind of a stickler for the rules you know like his own rules you know <laughs> not necessarily mm, right. like rules that like um are fair and and orderly but his rules and so i was like i kind of respected him at that moment cuz i was like yeah like lj is crazy like he he's not one to just like go with all the outlaws like he did also want to keep her in check you know because of what she had done I don't know. For me, that was like also kind of a pivotal moment in like showcasing like who um, uh, Wilford was because he's not just like going to take on, I guess, like for lack of a better term, like all the crazies, you know, (laughs) (laughs) falls into that category and a little bit psychotic. And so it had to fall in line with what he believes is true. So like. And that's when, like, you could even see it in her eyes where she was just like, oh, no, you know, like she tried, she tried to, like, backtrack it. And that's when Osweiler did his own thing that was, like, I don't know, very different, shifted the tone of the, of the, of the episode. But, yeah, I feel like that was very revealing as well to kind of Wilford, you know, like, he's not just, like, super crazy, you know, like, he has, like, it's like a method to the madness. <laughs> Oh, oh I, I would beg to differ. He's definitely super crazy. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like he's super crazy, but like it's it's methodical, you know? Like he does like his order. He does like his like, hey, I'm gonna classify people and then I'm gonna take my action. Cause like the LJ thing, if you think about it, like was just kind of like a left field thing and he was actually gonna like maybe punish her. I don't know. But maybe that's like a wo- also a woman thing because like Alex did mention in her spiel, like in, in the opener of season ten where 
I mean, episode 10, sorry, where she was like, oh, women were in power. So maybe that is sort of like a thing. I don't know. Mm. My initial reaction to that scene was the same. Like, oh, like he's like, how funny that he's going to choose this moment to be all like justice and stuff. Like I, I didn't buy it for, uh, I didn't buy it like completely, but for like a moment I thought, you know, I could totally see him just choosing when he's going to be more on choosing when he's not. But I didn't think of it as like, I'm going to hold to the rules. And then I feel, I think what followed was words about like, there is no crime on Snowpiercer. Like, you know, like it shouldn't have even happened, but like saying it as like the stuff that happens is the stuff that happens. That's how I took it in. I like, yes, like you might think these are crimes, but I'm telling you there are no crimes kind of like just let it be. So I took it as like, he was kind of saying, um, mind your business and like stay out of it. I think like to the room kind of thing and maybe just reinforcing an alliance with, with LJ in that way, but also just like reminding LJ, like you said, holding up, control over it but i totally read that whole scene a different way so now i want to go back and and take a look at it i'm really loving this conversation you guys inspiring all these different perspectives so uh make me rewatch experience it also doesn't help that i think that we all watched it like two weeks ago or at least i watched it like two <laughs> weeks ago so i'm having trouble fully remembering everything yeah i know what you mean as soon as i saw nine was available i was like well i might as well get that out of the way <laughs> but that turns out to be a while ago now the guy just it was very present in these two episodes as if as if the the carnival the puppet show and the dinner weren't enough he also had a mass execution in that same episode of people that were doing his shit there's no winning with that guy <laughs> From a just like a viewer perspective and like I, I have like two sides to me, right? Like it's like the person like just as me who like I want to see obviously I want the good guys to win. Obviously, that is also skewed if you're I don't know for people out there who are like maybe on Wilford's side. But like I'm very much on like the Snowpiercer side, Ruth. Andre but from like a TV perspective of like all the stuff we see like I love to see the Wolfords of the world you know in the TV world I don't know I kind of like seeing him do those things especially Sean Bean as Wilford doing these things like he's just played so well and I'm glad like I was kind of worried also that he was gonna die like he was gonna get killed as Wilford as a character like we maybe we don't want him to live overall but knowing that there's a season three, like I did want him to survive in some way. The train splitting and him knowing that like maybe he needs to have Snowpiercer in his life. And like he, even though he doesn't want to, kind of want to see how Wilford reacts to that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think I had guessed that Sean Bean might not be a multiple season guest star for this show. But the way that things wound up, I mean, in the first season, we had made these assumptions that Melanie was the villain and she was the antagonist that season. But she had her reasons. And now that we've seen her reasons, if Ruth is our stand in character, then we <laughs> see the logic in her reasons. And, you know, she might have been overboard at times, but the good of the many outweigh the need of the one, as they say. And and uh, she was acting in the in that way. In, in comparison to someone that's psychotic, like Mr. Wilford, it's a totally different different ball game. Next season, you're right. We did, we have kind of a, a wild card to look forward to because we're now we're not connected at the hip, except we do have our our loved ones back on 
the rest of Snowpiercer. We still have Zara and Andre Jr. And Ruth. Those, those aren't necessarily her loved ones, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Ruth is. Ruth is, yes, but not uh, for Inez, I think it's, Zara is not. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to let go. I'm going to let go. I'm going to take an opportunity here to grow. So audience, I am letting go of my resentment. I'm maturing. I'm sorry. Don't want to hate on a pregnant woman, um, especially during an apocalyptic era. So I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, she's just a survivor. I mean, do you fault her for choosing to stay on the train? Because she made that choice, right? She was like, I'm staying here instead of going with the pirate group. Yeah. I guess, I mean, that makes logistical sense if you're pregnant. There's. Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't fault her for that because, like, I, I mean, you guys have kids, so I can't speak on it. But I only having a puppy kid. I, I would not judge anyone for choosing their kid and the safety of the kid um, for, for anything. Yeah. I mean, it does make sense, right? Stay where the resources are. And, and I don't know how many kinds of available resources there are between the aquarium and the front engine. <laughs> uh, that, that makes sense. But I think also she might have already also been familiar with their return plan um, and knew that they might need somebody on the, a friend on the other side for them. Yeah. Well, that's how I look at the people that are still anchored to the train proper, our agents that will help us when we need it next season. However, that's going to work out. That obviously remains to be seen. So we've covered a lot of the main characters. We still, we've talked about Alex tangentially, but she went through a lot in these two episodes, a ton. Oh my God. So she gets her own little, little chapter here in our review. Man, where, where do we start? She has to be a kid for just like five seconds with the person that, that we knew from the beginning was her frenemy in LJ when they play in the carnival. But then right, right then, you know, the rug gets pulled out from under her with the, the puppet show from hell and it's pretty bad for her after that yeah that was so heartbreaking and so cruel wilford's just a dick and alex i felt for her i cried a lot in these last episodes for her i do love like that how strong she is despite it all and i know that unfortunately this strength is because of dealing with like his abuse for all her life these past seven years i found it particularly satisfying when she called him out at the dinner table <laughs> about what happened how he handled uh, big alice demographics. Oh, the culling? Where he froze half of the train based off of... Um, Age and ability a, yeah, to contribute the, and all that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love how she called him out because I felt like it led to one of the most like shocking, absurd things out of Wilford's mouth. Dare you make me relive this? Like, <laughs> oh, I was just like so shocked. Like, I was shocked of the stuff that was coming out of her mouth and I was like, oh man, I'm so glad that she's got the confidence to say that even if she knows it could get her killed or hurt or put away and she didn't give a fuck because you know he you know was has been so cruel to her in this particular day like throwing her emotions back and forth like pink on a ping pong table kind of thing so that was satisfying but oh my god like i guess bringing sean bean back with the stuff that he says that uh makes me love and hate him at the same time it really just throws me back because if you think about it like the people that you can hurt the most are the ones you love the most right because you know where to hurt them although maybe his intent of bringing out Alex on the train was to maybe down the road find Melanie and maybe use her against her and like he has used her as a pawn and like trained her so like she could be against Melanie if they ever did come about like I think he does love her that's why I think Alex feels that way of like 
to be very free and say how she feels because I don't know. I feel like it, 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 like she kind of understands him. Like I think he, she knows that he also loves her. And so he is, she is able to kind of speak freely in that way, knowing that he probably won't kill her, but I mean, maybe he will torture her in a way, not like literally, but like put her in the dungeon or something like that. You know what I mean? And he'll be, she'll be able to kind of get away from it. She maybe as Ruth as well has had a lot of growth in this season. I mean, she's a new character, but from season from episode one to see, to episode ten, like whew, what what uh like there's been a lot. <laughs> <laughs> now, the more that you're saying it, the more that it makes sense because he does continue to lash out at her, saying verbalizing what we had been assuming all along that he had picked her up as a tool only, and now that she's been used, he doesn't need her anymore. These validate what we suspected all along but like you're saying it's the kind of thing you would say if you did have an a real emotional investment in this other person and you felt betrayed but you're also kind of fucked up in the way that you care for people <laughs> which which you makes know. sense yeah. i can see it more cat i can i can see it more now because i've been very black and white like no she's just a tool he's using her he doesn't give a shit about anybody but you're right in this weird twisted way in this that in the way that he loves audrey where he has to literally convince her to hurt herself and bring her back he's done the same thing to alex in different ways that he always does seem to have that little bit extra grace and mercy on her when she does lash out that he wouldn't give to anybody and if you think about it like well we never saw but we don't know if melanie ever went through the bathtub i feel like i don't know if it's like a weird sadistic way that like maybe melanie challenged him you know where he liked that about her Mm. Um, that audrey didn't do that you know and maybe he kind of like that or love that in a way too you know what i mean like he didn't have to resort to that because like I, I don't i don't know what the correct term is but like you know what i mean like he like appreciated melanie's intellect maybe or like what she was able to do and that he didn't have to resort to that but like he also just being him didn't like that she wasn't submissive <laughs> I had kind of thought that maybe Mr. Wilford had categories of useful people that he kept for the people that that he surrounded himself with and and that Audrey fit squarely into this sexual connection that I think he might have been feeling that other ways also. But the way that Melanie fit into this protege pigeonhole or slot, in my mind, it didn't connect to the sexual part that much because it's like the rest of her, her mind and her ability to take his designs or whatever and turn them into real honest, you know, to God uh, machines and stuff like that, like the train far exceeded anything that she could offer any other way. This is going to be a little bit weird, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, like in the same way that you can have intimacy with somebody like on a sexual or romantic level, you can also experience intimacy on an intellectual with other people without any kind of like sexual involvement kind of thing. And I like to have these kinds of conversations with my friends. (laughs) Where we just kind of go on these thought trains and it's always kind of leaves me just feeling just really lifted 
excited and excited and motivated to kind of keep searching. I have big curiosity bug in me. We call them our brain-gasms. And, <laughs> and I always, like, I know this is going to be cheesy as fuck, but I always feel like that makes me stronger connected with somebody where I seek out, like, their company more frequently because it's almost an equivalency of, like, it, it's, it just kind of feels like a closeness kind of relationship, even if it's literally only on an intellectual level. I can totally see Wilfer like having people in those different categories like that. Oh my God, that makes so much sense because if you think about it, like seeing him take over the train and save the train in that way, we realize he does have that intellect. And so you would... Like that made me realize like, oh, that's why he would connect with Melanie, who is so brilliant. And, you know, she has her own that sort of thing. And that that's why they would connect and like have this kind of relationship that that makes total sense of like it might not have been sexual, but it would just been like this because like imagine being I, I don't I mean I guess Wilfred is brilliant in his own way so like I just want to say like it can be kind of lonely right like when everyone else like for lack of a better term is like a dumbass <laughs> um, you need to have someone on your level to just like feel like you're in the world and like you know you're just not I'm not a genius so like I don't know that <laughs> um, I don't I don't know that loneliness but I, I do feel that like with TV and film and like that's why I love talking to you guys because like I feel like we can really talk about it and sometimes like I know I've t I, I speak TV and film with other people who like don't have that vernacular or they like don't think about TV and film like I do and it does feel like uh, I don't know like you should be in the shitter room you know <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I, I, I can kind of see like where you guys I would put you guys in like the intellect category yeah. of like having that braingasm of, of that sense you know I love it I love it I appreciate that. I'm glad we're on the right podcast then. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh yeah, for sure. It's so fun. Like I love the the new perspectives that the new and fresh or different perspectives that I get from this group and then reading the commentary from the audience you know, right after they've seen it, after I've had time to kind of process and I just kind of get really excited um, to see how people think. You're absolutely right, Kat. I didn't even think about that too, that, that Wilford, like the only person who could talk to Wilford at that level is Alex. Well, and Mel, but yeah. Well, in the last seven years on the train. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but she kind of like effed him, you know, like she, 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 she crossed him. And so Wilfred is very much like, although he is very intellectual, he is like, I don't know what it is, but he, he can be very primal. And like, so he, I don't know, he's taking revenge on Mel and he's like, even though I think she is his kind of intellectual, like, um, on the same level, even maybe a little bit above, like, he's like, well, you've wronged me. You've taken revenge. Like you are now my enemy, no matter how intellectual you are. And now I have like Alex that can kind of take your level in a way. So well, he's got that unpredictable Kylo Ren sort of tantrum behavior yeah. that makes him dangerous to be around. Like what does he strikes Kevin? And he says, no, why did I do that? And Till says poor impulse control. That <laughs> <laughs> well, no, was crazy. That was crazy. And then I think it also just shows you how little he cares about Kevin, because even like Kevin is always saying like the things that he believes Wilford wants to hear. He's right. like totally his puppet and he treats him like that. And then Alex says whatever she wants and he has her casually in a cage until she's like, OK, I'm ready to kiss your ass. <laughs> yeah. My question is, though, because I know we haven't spoken about it, but Melanie, 
Mm-hmm. Do you think that she is truly dead? Because in in my experience as a TV viewer, having a guest star like that, or like having a star like credited star like Jennifer Connelly, like is that the way you really send her out? Like I, I just feel like I'm not convinced that that is the end of Melanie. But I also think like they gave her, they gave us all the reason that it is the end. So I don't know. I'm with you. I hate off screen deaths just hearing someone else say, yeah, I killed them. Or like in this case, you know, all the pieces are there, but they don't actually show us the body. Maybe it's that they don't want to show us frozen Jennifer Connelly for some reason. But yeah, I don't, I can't think of one solid rational motivation for her to have lied and then any other kind of rational explanation for how she would have hidden or why she would have hidden that none of that makes sense the train is the only path forward to life and if she's not on it i I just hate off-screen deaths though i'm I'm with you caddy because they leave the door open but in this case i don't see how it is I, I was really sad watching the scene. I could, you know, I felt Alex's desperation going through all over the site. The moment that she kind of had that realization and, and kind of broke down and she said she's gone and how she broke down, like, oh my God, it like tore up my soul. And I also teared up like reading the letter or hearing her read the letter. So, you know, it, it was very heartbreaking because whether Melanie is alive or not, that pain that Alex was feeling was real. I think the actress did a really great job portraying that pain. And, and I think that we do owe it the show in this moment to, to mourn just on the fact that Al- of understanding the kind of pain that Alex's experience of losing her mother in her life twice. Now I took that moment for like what it is. So Paul, I am with you. I also fucking hate off-screen deaths, <laughs> especially of my favorite characters, like like Melanie. She was she was one of my. I know she was very villainous, but like I am very kind of scientifically practical, and so I'm like, well, you know, necessary evil, and she's a genius and brilliant, and she made this train. So like, let's just fall in line, kind of thing. I want to introduce a topic here that I read from the Facebook groups. Oh, on the Facebook groups. Uh, some, and I have not confirmed if this is real or not, but apparently in the graphic novels, there are, um, stories about survivors who are underground. We've seen in this season, the geothermal pockets that do exist and have created life. And we also know that there are more than like one genius in the world, (laughs) regardless of what Wilford might think. So, so the idea is that there, that there were people. People who were able to survive the snow apocalypse by creating a society underground. I am interested in finding out if the reason that we now have to t- deviate from Melanie's story is for the purpose of introducing this new society while Snowpiercer crew goes on with their life, believing that Melanie is gone forever. Ooh, I really hope that is the case because I just feel like it it would go against everything that I have known in my TV like viewing (laughs) world in like 20 years you know (laughs) like like that they would just kill off a guest star in this way like it just does not feel right in my like being you know and if it is true like you know I guess that that it is what it is but like 
even with Sean Bean, like in Game of Thrones, like they gave him a really good death. You know, like it was not the the one that we wanted. It was not the story end, but it was a good death. With Melanie, we only got like a few episodes and like an off screen death. Like that is just, like I'm sure I don't know what they're paying her, but I just feel like that is not what she would have uh, agreed to. You know, like I, I just feel like it is not worthy of like the stardom that she is and maybe I'm wrong but like no I agree with you Kat I think that like with how intense and raw everything has been in especially I feel like they stepped it up a lot in season two compared to season one I felt like there's a lot less of that sci-fi cheese that I was always kind of like looking out for (laughs) Um, and it was more like badass hardcore moments so it does fall flat that like one of our most beloved characters it just disappears just like that like it would be terribly disappointing. But if we're going to continue the parallel with Game of Thrones, like, okay, let's think, let's talk about the finale of the whole Game of Thrones <laughs> series where uh, I don't know a single person that was like really, truly satisfied with the way like Daenerys's reign ended, especially when you're a fan of the books and, and the fan of the show and, and just kind of like how all of that felt really rushed. You know, so if they do make her die off screen, I'm going to equivalate it <laughs> to like, well, I guess they're just following the Game of Thrones template. Maybe if you're saying that there is an underground, I feel like Melanie would strategically before she like lets them know that there is this underground because it may get to Wilford, want to scope it out first, you know, and like let them do what they're doing because like obviously that needs to be done and like let them do what they're doing before she like gives them a sign that, hey, like this is good to go. I feel like that would be the scientist in her that would make sense. So I, I hope that is the case. <laughs> or I like I like this whole thing because I, I hate the idea that she's dead. The fact that they showed us the, the, the geothermal pocket breaking through the wall there. I think that that could have been foreshadowing. It'd be really effective if it is. And that would imply that they're that they're close to maybe a cavern or some other natural formation that could have been used in, in that way to let people, you know, ride it out. You could see where maybe the people in that settlement would notice the fact that that this goddamn train has gone by like three times this month. <laughs> you know? <laughs> have, have somebody go take a look at that thing. And then they go up and they see, you know, Melanie's prone body just on the snow and they, and they drag her back in and, and that might extend the story for both her and just overall. Cause you know, there's going to be more strife on both trains trying to get things sorted out next season. That's still sort of, in this claustrophobic train world that the whole time we've been wondering how they're going to extend that train existence into a story that, that makes us compelled to want to keep coming back. Well, if you have this, this element of people being able to live off train in a plausible way, you know, we're still, it's not like they're, they're icy Josies. They, they still will die if they, if they come out in the snow more than a few seconds. But that extends it in, in a in a plausible way where yeah you know I don't know how they mix back in exactly because they're stationary and the train goes all over the planet but still we can't use the the additional train idea anymore we've already used that card <laughs> so <laughs> uh, what does that leave us 
Yeah. Especially since I feel like, especially with the COVID situation and like, I don't know what, like, I'm surprised that it even get, it got greenlit for a third season just because I know the one and two were together. Yeah. So I don't know if we're going to get a fourth season. So I feel like if they were to go off train, the third season would be the one to do it in and like Inez just gave me the idea that maybe if like I'm hoping <laughs> that Melanie is alive that and if you're saying that there I haven't read the graphic novel so I can't confirm it either but it like that's a very interesting way to like kind of maybe have like whatever is going on with the train dynamics and then also having like this off world which is like the ultimate goal right of like hopefully being able to repopulate the earth and all that kind of stuff so I feel like that would be a really great television arc. Wilford to train dynamic and then also maybe melanie finding this uh like underground world and like having that world and maybe trying to communicate with snowpiercer in a way yeah i mean i don't know jennifer Connolly's uh schedule they will often do something like this like tim riggins going to jail for instance uh yeah. <laughs> when an actor needs time off for a movie or, or something yeah. yeah and it may have been like my thought was like it might have been covid related you know just because like it was, it was pretty crazy and like maybe it was just the way to go <laughs> i just hope it's not because it doesn't really make sense for the story right like like how many like wasn't there like a thousand rats like did she really eat all all of those rats like <laughs> yeah, rats, right like rats seven are, to eight yeah. years worth of rats yeah i feel like like you could have ate one rat a day because you like you could have burned the snow and it would have been like you, at least you had water <laughs> like i don't know well what else we got before we wrap up our our coverage who else are we missing that's that's pretty till, till. I feel, yeah i felt like till had you know there maybe we can kind of like do a segment here of some kind of like uh the smaller characters because okay. i did kind of so till I, i'm really like i really am like loved till in these last episodes you know how i last week i complained or last time i complained about you know like when wilford is the only one who makes me laugh but till has some fucking cool lines in these episodes um <laughs> yeah. that i really i really liked and I, I really loved her growth and i i really like till a ton i love how she gets like overly protective now all of a sudden over this baby it's kind of like weird to me but at, at first a little bit like she's so like mission focused on like saving this baby i think what did she say if wilford kills that baby i'm gonna kill him with the butter knife <laughs> like she's just like <laughs> she's like okay she's like ready to throw down oh my god like i'm just still kind of stuck on that wilford till scene when uh he brings those the offenders who killed the the breach men i also though wasn't even super like convinced that they were like even really the people like i feel like he totally is the type who could just like pull randomly uh, from like the lesser the, the lesser population you know and just pretend and say like these are the ones that did it um mm -hmm. that was kind of like the feel that i was going with because that would like how like sloppy and irresponsible it is you already have tiny resources and you're and like these good ones that are already loyal which you care only about loyalty i'm not even fully convinced that those were the actual people um because he didn't even like let her talk to them but i just love like the disdain and uh the attitude that she was giving him despite like saying fine i'm gonna be your consultant or your advisor what do you guys think about till in these last episodes i liked her how i mean she's in survival mode telling mr wilford no is a great way to go places where people don't hear from you ever again and uh, <laughs> right and so she doesn't do that 
but she still isn't necessarily tied to him, you know, at the hip either. So she she can still meet with the other rabble rousers. That moment when she punches out Miss Audrey is is pretty funny. Miss Audrey had kind of position of of privilege in the night car, and and Till had to work her way up from Brakeman uh, to living with Jinju in second class, and and never really took for granted the idea of class and and that kind of stuff. And then, you know, I'm sure she, there was some amount of stink lines coming off just because of the betrayal or uh, perceived betrayal by Miss Audrey uh, siding with Mr. Wilford and all that kind of stuff and just pops her one in the face. It was just it felt cathartic for her. It, it didn't feel like just, well, I have to make I have to convince someone to do something that they don't want to do. It felt more like I really want to hit you in the face <laughs> it was, yeah it was really satisfying and uh it was it, i was unexpected because i think at that point i was still sort of like come on audrey like deliver deliver <laughs> no although we do think that or i thought that maybe audrey had it together and you know she would be um, able to overcome whatever Wilford had over her I think Inez you've described it perfectly where you know it is she is kind of the representation of how it's not that easy to kind of like turn the switch even though it has been seven years like you can't just like whatever he did to her which obviously was very traumatic with like the Kevin scene that we saw like I don't know we would all kind of have to be um like, I don't know if I could get through that, you know, and then seeing him again, like, who knows if I would be an Audrey. And so with Bess, like, I think she is kind of, I don't I don't know. It, it's funny how Wilfred could just probably kill her, right? If you think about it, like, he can kill anybody he wants, but he leaves her there. And I, I don't know if she, he's, she's just like maybe the working class version of a Melanie and Alex. <laughs> mm. and he likes having them there because they kind of push against whatever he's doing and he kind of likes that like adversity but in a sense where he can still control it because like if you have everyone who's subservient to you like it's kind of boring i think right or i mean i've never had anyone like like that but (laughs) i'm just saying in theory it would seem like if everyone is just bowing to you like i don't know at some point it would be a little boring right like he enjoys the playful banter yeah well and you'd be concerned that you're not getting good advice I guess, if you're really interested in getting good advice, <laughs> if everyone's yeah. just constantly agreeing with you, that one dissenter, it might help give you that one perspective that you hadn't thought of, even though, like in Mr. Wilford's case, he never uses that perspective, <laughs> but he seems to be glad to have it. Yeah, it's sort of like he's on a true, if we're, I mean, just because Game of Thrones, I think, set the standard for this, but like, he's on a true Joffrey, you know, I think he does like having that outside opinion but he also takes pride in not using it <laughs> and, and like to the opposite of joffrey where like he doesn't even seek the outside opinion he just wanted to like do whatever he wanted to do the other two characters that i have in mind and it's i don't think that we'd need to spend a whole lot of them but was anybody else surprised that we didn't see like uh a roche rescue not exactly i mean the drawers rescues are iffy you know, you need you need a medical person tied into that, and we hadn't seen the doctor. What was her name Pelton? Uh, in a, in in quite a while, and the Headwoods wouldn't help. They're weird. I mean, they're they're they are totally bent to his will completely. Mm, so maybe like a season three um, opportunity. Back when when Cat and I did season one, we considered the drawers of as a way to 
to extend the show a little bit by offering new characters that you that you either hadn't heard from in a while or hadn't heard from before at all. Uh, they just pop out of the drawers, you know, and <laughs> and they can fill some sort of need. And so Roche and his family might fit into that category in terms of we'll need them later. So it'll be it will be really cool when we do see them. Yeah, I um I I really wish I, and I hope maybe in season three they they use the drawers more because I feel like it's like an untapped uh, potential like of who is in there. Maybe it's like not going to be at play at all, at all in in these seasons and like when it ends. But I don't know. I I always thought like I thought Wilford would be in the drawer. Like that was one of my predictions in Snowpiercer and uh, no, Mrs. Wilford. <laughs> Yes, maybe Mrs. Wolford. Um, but like, I feel like that would just be like the great way to be like, okay, let's like bring this person in. Um, you know, who else has been uh, drawered in in a sense? So, I mean, the fact that we they made it a point to tell us like show us that uh, Roche has gone to the drawer and his family. Like, I mean, I feel like that has to be brought up in season three, or maybe. Um, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I do appreciate like that there is like kind of off. Uh, like, I know there was like a non-appreciation for like the off-screen deaths but like i do feel like there is very much like the world building in this um uh snowpiercer world where we don't necessarily have to see everything but they do allude to that so like if the drawer is going to just be one of those things like i guess i can be okay with that but i would like to know more about it just from like a sci-fi fan standpoint (laughs) the 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 last question that i had was your thoughts about the time we spent listening to Osweiler do his performance. That is curious, isn't it? To give a guy that's kind of been a tool this whole time, some actual backstory and personality and a talent that you would never have thought possible from that weasel. But there it is. You know, since it didn't go anywhere in 10, I mean, you know, Osweiler just kind of faded out. I don't know what to make of that other than other than just uh, needing to keep Oz on the map for us, you know, and, and make him a deeper character for some reason, hopefully coming later. But Oh, maybe because Audrey is now stuck in the other train. So now he gets to step up in season three as as uh, Mr. Audrey, Mr. Audrey. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. I hadn't thought of it that way. But- <laughs> That would actually make sense in a very Wilford-esque sort of way. Yeah, I mean, obviously Wilford didn't know that Audrey was going to be in a separate train from him really abruptly. But I guess the setup makes sense because when I watched episode nine, you know, I was trying to make sense of this. I was like, okay, the song is called Is Love Alive? He's just singing it. And I thought also like, oh, interesting that he has such a beautiful talent and character about him, considering how disgusting he's been since the moment I met him in season one. And and I had some respect for him here in season two as just this opportunistic survivor. So, you know, to have such a kind of like a refined talent like that that took years of nurturing and enriching you know it did make me kind of curious about like oh my god like who is Osweiler like but then also is like what the uh, what is the point of me watching like eight minutes of this (laughs) and so now that we finished episode 10 and we're talking about it now I, I think that's the way I would connect the dots 
I, I really don't know what his purpose is because he, I mean, they are LJ and him are side characters, but they have made a point to really give them sort of some story time. And as we know, like nothing is just given in TV time. So I feel like it has to serve a purpose. And if they know they had season three, like maybe they will serve a purpose and given his connection with, Till maybe that will like come through in season three at some point. Um, but also like in that moment, I have to say, like, <laughs> I was like a little bit teary. Um, just because like it was really beautiful knowing like like I, I guess it just showed like the survival in people and how like we had no idea that he had this talent and like that's what he did in I guess his previous life outside of Snowpiercer and like everyone at that moment just felt like, oh, this is what it was to be alive, you know, like outside of Snowpiercer, outside of Big Alice. And so it was kind of a beautiful moment in in that way of like, we used to just like enjoy music and like, yeah, yeah, it was just really beautiful in that sense. Yeah, no, I, I definitely appreciated it in that way. I just felt like this is a really long time. Like, I feel like they spent a really long time on it. And I think that's when, you know, after a certain time, I was just like, okay, like I got it. Like I processed all the stuff I was going to process about it. Um, and then it just kind of made me wonder, but now like, you know, because they tend to do that, I tend to linger on specific kinds of details, you know, without any kind of hint about where it's going. Just like in episode nine, Ruth starting with the very manicured, well put together and finishing in the poop room. So for, and then, you know, Osweiler starts as like the janitor and then he ends up like in this very like classy environment. And I think a testament to his like how good he is at being a survivor. You're right, Kat. Like just the whole idea of like the music, like him probably like seeing that instrument, probably like, like he was just by default kind of like drawn to it, just you know, like I know, like I have friends who play are like professional piano players and they can't help themselves but to touch a keyboard when they see one. So, <laughs> you know, I, I bet that that was probably like a moment of joy for him, too. So I, I'll appreciate that more now that you've kind of like given me that view on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were also doing like a montage while they like he was singing. So I don't know. To me, I guess that's why I didn't think it was too long is because like it was like showcase like it was it was it would linger on like Audrey, who is like basically like she seems like she's just intoxicated on whatever she is because she's I think she's dealing with being under Wolford's kind of arm again. And then like it was lingering on Audrey and then it was also going to um, Layden. And so I think it was just showing us like sort of maybe the humanity of like what they've lost you know and like it kind of honed it in like oh yeah this is what they're fighting for but they, everyone's like lost perspective on it right and so like that's, that's what I felt like that was that moment is like it kind of brought it back even for me as a viewer I was like oh yeah like it's Aww. not just like this fun of like post-apocalyptic world like I just want to see destruction like all this sort of like cool plot points like yeah it is about like what would we do in these moments and like we would probably lose ourselves and like Osweiler brought it back and he's like the most shitty person that we've like kind of like come to know in a way you know in terms Um, of like regular shittiness I mean not yeah yeah, regular (laughs) shittiness not like you know killing people but like you know if if we're if, if, if I'm finding humanity in Osweiler like 
this show, I don't know. It felt like that moment was doing something right. Is my, Aww, is my I love that cat. Okay. You brought me back on the empathy side um, of this part. So <laughs> thank you so much for that. I, I love that. I totally was just seeing, trying, I think, um, you know, I was kind of eager also to make sure that I wasn't missing anything. And I might've been overthinking like that moment, but you're, you're totally right. This was totally the appropriate place and kind of the first opportunity for us in a long time to get to slow down and reflect. And that was a really well set up to do that. But I think it just also makes more sense why they would choose him to be that center on a montage. But only after we know what happens in episode 10, we would know. But I think it's also kind of feeds into you know, the title, the show must go on. And this is, you know, the whole scene right there was like, what do you, what do you have to offer? Mm-hmm. And right. that's when he like stepped up and, and is like, you know, doing it cause he's a survivor. So for him, this, the show must go on. So, and he can do it. Uh, LJ tries just normal ass kissing and <laughs> it did not work. <laughs> no, no, I needed a tangible skill. Uh, it was a, it was a bizarre answer to why should I keep you as head of janitorial? But you know, if you got it, then uh, you don't get if you don't ask, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, very true. (laughs) The opening scenery of episode 10 was so beautiful into the white. I think I've heard you say, Paul, before that they filmed this in Canada. Like, do you think that that was like real footage of it? Or do you think that was like recreated CGI? Because it was just so beautiful. And I felt the into the white theme. I think almost everything is computer generated when it's outside the train, but I can't say for sure. Um, I just, I, I think it is. Every one of the exterior train shots this season has been a sci-fi nerd's just joy to, to watch because they've really gone out of their way to throw in those pieces that we look for when post-apocalyptic stuff. We like to see those remnants of the world that has has moved on right the flags overhead or whatever that they that they go under that in that one scene or from a couple weeks ago the spiral thing that reminded me of for some reason of like the polar express (laughs) when you know it goes around that that mountain i don't think that they're necessarily that they send like a drone to to go film the actual area and then they lay in the the uh train track or whatever but they might i'll go google it later (laughs) this is kind of off topic but there's a there's a virtual convention going on right now called WonderCon, and there is a group there talking about snowpiercer's visual effects um so that that might be online um in the next couple of days do do you guys have anything else that you want to cover before we wrap it up nothing for me i i honestly didn't expect it to go this route um <laughs> pun intended um uh to season three like i honestly just like from if, if you watch the movie and it's very straightforward of like them uh you know and i'm talking about like bon joon ho's movie of like going straightforward like it's very intense um and you're thinking like how will this translate to a series i think they've done a really good job in season one and season two of like making it its own thing keeping the spirit of like the brutality and like, you know, the craziness of, of the movie, but really making it its own thing. And, um, like also making it serve like where it could be longer than two seasons. 
if the third season is the end, like, I think it's pretty, it, it's pretty good. Like I, I was skeptical to be honest, like after seeing the movie, I was like, how are they going to do this? I, I really enjoyed these two seasons and I, I'm really excited for season three. Yeah. I think you're not alone in that skepticism. And I remember some of the um, reviews that came out right when the show came on, out uh, originally, they were pretty lukewarm about the show uh, initially because it wasn't a duplication of the movie at all, <laughs> except in setting and name and, you know, kind of the setup and all that. But besides that, you know, it didn't follow the same plot or anything. And the idea about maintaining the intensity, well, they had to build it. They got to a point where, you know, they had the revolution last year. And then from then on, I think that that intensity has been maintained pretty well over the second season with the introduction of Mr. Wilford and just how you couldn't predict what he was going to do because it was so nuts, everything that he chose to do. I think uh, a lot of people's minds are changing. Um, I There was even a guy who, uh, he's a very rational thinker who uh, who we knew from, Carolyn and I knew from the Leftovers uh, fandom, which, you know, requires that you believe one wild, you know, supernatural thing in order for the rest of the story to make any sense at all. So I knew he had it in him, but I told but he said he watched three episodes and he was like, I can't do it. And I, I told him, no, you can, you just need to keep going. And now when I, when I post a podcast, he, he comments. So I know he's up to date with us. <laughs> he made it yeah. through because, because the quality is there. If you look it up on IMDb, the rating isn't that high, but I think it's suffering from those initial ratings that were like, this isn't the movie. You're, you're right, Kat. It's, I think it's standing on its, on its own at this point. Yeah, like, I feel like it could go, I mean, I don't think it is going to go, but I think it could go, like, um, especially if Anais says, like, the, the there's, like, comic books in, in this realm, like, it could go off-world, you know, into, like, four, five, six seasons, but, like, who knows if it'll go that far. <laughs> I feel like season three, especially with the stars who are attached, maybe it won't go that far, but, um, like, yeah. I don't I, I, I feel like um, if it's going to end on season three, like it probably will go out with a bang just because it's, it's really gone unexpected from what I thought it would be like the cheesiness of it and all that. It, <laughs> it hasn't gone that way. So I'm, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised. <laughs> well, I think that that does it for our coverage of the second season of Snowpiercer. It's been an absolute pleasure working with you two this season. I look forward to our recordings every week for our discussion and and uh, different viewpoints. So I'm glad you guys were as into it as I was. Totally. I'm really looking forward to season three. Yes, me too. I'm so excited that Inez joined and it's always fun talking to you, Paul, about um, all TV. So I'm excited to talk season three with you guys in the future. We'll yes, to, thank you for having me. We'll have to find an excuse to find another show later this year. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, this has been Paul. This is Kat. And this is Inez. And we will catch you for season three. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.